Welcome back to the Chasing Sunday podcast. Welcome back. We are here welcome for you. Welcome back. Uh, what is that? It's uh, Welcome Back Carter. Welcome Back Carter. And that's you. You are Car- Car- you're, Carter. You're Cotter. Cotter. K-O-T-T-E-R. Well, you are Cotter in this scenario, and we are the Welcome Back team. We are the lovable band of, of high school misfits who you Scants, are. Scamps, as they would call them. Is that what they call them? Scamps? Scamps? Is that what you said? It's us figuring out English in this <laughs> episode of Chasing Sunday. Anyway, we're glad that you're listening. Thank you so much for uh, for your your faithful listenership. And uh, we have uh, – I feel like we say this every time, but we just keep getting great guests. And this is a great – Great episode. Um, with, so good. With Dr. Todd. Better than we deserve. Better than, way better than we deserve. Uh, with Dr. Todd Ferguson. Um, and uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about Todd? Yes. So Dr. Todd Ferguson is a sociologist of religion at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor in Belton, Texas. His research focuses on the social organization of religion, specifically congregations and their clergy. He's fascinated fascinated with the fact that religions are more than ideas and beliefs. They are structures and communities that profoundly affect people's lives. And uh, what we talk about on this show is the the book that he wrote with Dr. Josh Packer um, called Stuck. And um, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Um, the Tagline is why clergy are alienated from their calling, congregation, and career, and what to do about it. Um, we really get into it. Um, so he's he's earned a PhD. He's got he's probably one of the most educated people we've had on this show. Pro- probably we've got a lot of educated people, but he is a PhD in sociology at Baylor University. Uh, before becoming a sociologist. Um, Todd earned a Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School, and was a pastor in Houston. And he's married to Emma, and um, who is a veteran veterinarian, which I can say. Veter- veterinarian. And they have two wonderful children. What? So he's got his hands full. I think he's, he definitely has his hands full. And and so, in light of all that, we are extremely grateful that he took the time uh, to uh, to sit down and and talk with a, a couple of. Uh, couple of nobodies like us so um i i am i dear worship leader who is listening to this right now um we don't talk a ton about uh you know kind of the ins and outs of worship ministry per se but his insights into some of the things that are going on just in church culture and particularly within church staff culture and and uh, you know unpacking you know issues of calling and and the work that we do and all that kind of stuff it is it, I, my mind is blown which is why i'm having mm-hmm. trouble talking right now um his just it's it's so insightful and i think it's going to be very very helpful um and and very hopeful like that yeah. uh, you know uh, it's just it's this is an episode that is dripping not only with information but with hope mm-hmm. um and so uh so as you get into this listen closely have something close by to to write uh, write on and write with um take notes man get just go full nerd on this episode <laughs> and take notes um but uh but yeah thank you so much uh, to 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 Todd for for taking the time but thank you for listening please enjoy uh this episode of Chasing Sunday with Dr. Todd Ferguson Dr. Todd Ferguson, um, <laughs> thank you so much for being um, being willing to come on the podcast, um, Chasing Sunday, and uh, share with us your incredible research, um, uh, very necessary research for um, the people who listen to the show. But um, but I would say f- for us personally is is incredibly meaningful. Um, but uh, as you uh, kind of get us. Get us up to speed. What's sort of your spiritual tradition? Where where did you come from? So I grew up in East Texas, um, and I grew up as a Southern Baptist. Um, grew up in a, a really, I would say, healthy church. Um, it was really meaningful for me. Uh, First Baptist Church of a, a big town in East Texas. Um, 
And that is, that, that's my, that's my roots. Um, and when I was in undergrad at Baylor, um, I started to see the world outside of Southern Baptist. Um, and I loved it. I, I loved exploring the many streams of Christianity. Um, and so I continue to still call myself Baptist. I'm, um, and, um, but after undergrad and seeing, Hey, there's a bigger world out there. Um, went to a divinity school. I went to Duke divinity school. And part of that was for ecumenism, ecumenical relations, like having a theology professor that was Catholic, having, um, a preaching professor that was in the black Pentecostal tradition that challenged me. <laughs> um, and um, just being around the full expression of Christianity was a beautiful experience for me. So, but my roots are um, in Baptist life. Um, I served in a cooperative Baptist fellowship congregation um, in Texas um, when I was in the, um, on staff at a church. Um, and so I, I count myself as an ecumenical Baptist. That's sort of how I describe myself. Okay. What was your, what was your role when you were on staff at, at the church? Uh, so I had a, a challenging role of being the associate pastor for youth and children. So babies through 18, wow. wow. Uh, which is impossible. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It meant I was a horrible youth pastor and a horrible children's minister, <laughs> but I actually had a great community there. They were so supportive. They, um, it was a great experience. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's cool. What was, what was the sort of the, I don't know, person or inv- I, I think of it in terms of inciting incidents, you know, what was the thing that set you on the path of I guess sociology and sociology as ministry, like, uh, you know, that, that you're involved in now, where, what, where did that yeah. begin? You know, looking back on my life, you know, I haven't had this clear path. Um, but looking back on my life, I've always been a sociologist of religion. Even when I was a high schooler, um, I was pretty nerdy as a high schooler, not going to surprise people if they know me. Um, and I, when I got my driver's license, I asked my friends who went to other churches, I said, Hey, I heard you go to this thing called an Episcopal church, take me. And so they took me and, um, I went to a Spanish speaking assemblies of God church with a friend. Um, and when I'm there, I'm, I'm worshiping, but I'm also like, I didn't know what to call it, but I was taking field notes, uh, like a sociologist does. And I was looking at rituals and, um, what hymnal are they using? What version of the Bible are they using? What kind of prayers are they saying? It took me a long time to realize what that home was called, sociology of religion. Um, in undergrad, I didn't study the field. Um, in divinity school, I annoyed my professors because I, I remember being in a class on the Trinity with Jeffrey Wainwright, this British theologian. Um, and I kept asking questions like, well, how many people practice this? Are there social class differences in churches that do this? And finally he said like, this is a class on the theology of the Trinity. (laughs) You, you're wanting to do sociology. Yeah. And so I finally heard that, oh, wow, this is called sociology. So I started reading that and realizing there was a home that I had been doing all my life Um, and always asking sort of the social parts of faith, not really the theology parts. And so it took me a long time to get there. But once I found it, I was like, yes, this is who I am. So there was a curiosity there that just sort of innate that was always with you. Sounds like. Always. I am, I'm intensely curious. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's such it's been an important thing to to realize and to to look at and to explore for a long time but i feel like right now 
you know, especially now, the, this is such an important thing as we, um, you know, maybe the, the church seems to be finally waking up to the idea that like, oh, wait, we're, we're not just a, like a collection of beliefs and believers. Like we are a, like we're a community. We are, there is a social structure to all of it. And, and so I think in, in that vein, like the work that you're doing and, and, and the stuff that, that you've come out with is, is very timely. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I think we'll, yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to, I'm excited for, to, to see where this, where this conversation goes because I, yeah, I just think that this stuff is so, so, so important right now. Right. So. And you, so, um, Todd, you, you wrote a book with Dr. Josh Packard called Stuck, uh, Why Clergy mm-hmm. Are Alienated from Their Calling, Congregation, and Career, and What to Do About It. Um, and I'm so grateful that, you know, you were on um, the Future Christian podcast, and that was the connection. How You, you came here because uh, Lauren is a friend of ours, part of our com- uh, organization. And um, when I was reading this book, and then when I was listening to that show— did I had this experience where I'm both grateful for and a little bit discouraged by, which is the fact that I was like, <laughs> I, you know, everybody thinks that their experiences are unique and everybody's just like, oh, you're just kind of, you're special and all this stuff and nobody's having these things. Mm-hmm. I read the book and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm right in the center of this sociological mm-hmm. dynamic, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. what's happening demographically. Like I am, and I, and I would say, I think because of the conversations we have often, Brian and I, we are right there in the center of it, of um, where where we happen to be in, in the middle of our history as a country, um, but also globally and also within the history of the church. Um, and so you, you talk about um, some major factors, these three major factors that really determine – um, that they're kind of shaping religion right now. Um, would you talk a little bit about what those what those factors are? Absolutely, yeah. And so, yeah, our book stuck came out of conversations. Um, we were doing some other research on why people were just leaving church, you know, but not leaving Jesus. Um, but pastors keep kept coming up to us and saying, "Hey, we want to be a part of this study." Um, and we didn't know what to do with that. So Josh and I devised this research plan. And as we're talking with pastors, so we're interviewing pastors. Um, and as we're talking, these three gigantic social patterns, social forces um, start to come into play and start to come into focus. Um, so the first would be social Darwinism. Um, this idea of, of the survival of the fittest. Um, Congregations, we don't like to talk about it, but we all know it's true. Congregations compete and they compete with each other and the best survive. And we have, um, that's just the the world we live in. Um, If a congregation doesn't do well in terms of attracting members and money, then they're going to shut down. And it might take a while. It might take a couple generations, but they're going to shut down. Um, so that's one giant social force that we saw pastors really struggling with. And the second one was capitalism. So we live in a world where numbers and growth rule. And so the focus is on not so much earning profit in terms of making more money for the individual pastors, but it's having more resources. And resources for churches are members and money. And so the constant measure of success in a capitalistic culture is growth. I mean, we see that with quarterly earnings with, you know, businesses. And so, you know, pastors are feeling that pressure to get more members, get more money, get more resources, bigger buildings, more programming. So those two social forces, nothing is new there. In America, we've always had social Darwinism. Um, we do not have an established state church. So no church is supported by taxes. And so um, that's not new. You know, since colonial era, you know, the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians were competing in New England. Um, we've also not 
or it, it's not new that we've been focused on growth either. What is new is the third large social force, which is secularization. There are just fewer people who are looking for a church. So our society is seeing church attendance. Um, the the sociologists would call it religiosity. How much religion does a person have in terms of prayer, belief, church attendance, um, Bible reading? That is going down. It's declining. It's not so much declining in an individual's life. So we're not seeing trajectories of people individually changing their level of religion. It's we're seeing new generations are less religious than old generations, and old generations are dying off. And so with every silent generation person that's dying or with every baby boomer that's dying that's pretty religious, a new person is being born who will be less religious. So we're seeing generational replacement. And that's a game changer. So for pastors, the rules of the game have not changed in terms of grow your church with money, members, um, compete with the church next door, offer a better product, um, have a better worship service because you're going to attract people. That has not changed. What has changed is, oh yeah, there are just fewer people to attract. There's less money out there to attract. And so we haven't changed the rules. Um, so pastors still feel this pressure to grow, to produce, to create um, a worship service that is attractive, that's exciting, that gets butts and pews. But at the end of the day, they're just fewer butts to be in those people. <laughs> that's the just that's the butts. that's the quote for the for the uh, for the headline of the podcast. That's there right. are there are fewer butts. Fewer butts. Um, depending on who you talk to, there <laughs> I. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I I make the mistake of looking at Christian Twitter every now and then, and it seems like there are a whole oh, lot dear. of there, oh, are, <laughs> there there are a whole lot of butts out there. Um, uh, so I, you said a couple things that that were interesting to me, um, primarily. So I think that that secularization that word is is sort of seen as a naughty word. You 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 kind of define it a little bit differently than I think most people would. You know, it's like. We look at secularization as like, you know, oh, secular culture is infiltrating the church and, and all that kind of stuff. The, your definition, I feel like, is a lot more uh, – it's a lot more nuanced. It's a lot more balanced um, and, and not as – at least it doesn't seem as threatening uh, to the church. Um, but but the, the thing that you said, like – this the secularization that fewer people are looking for a church, but but not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have an impact on on like their individual spirituality or their individual desire for that connection. Can you could you speak more to that? Like what where do you think that disconnect lies in between? Like so they they still want this connection, but they just don't want it in church. Is there that's that sounds interesting to me. That, I mean I, yeah, I see it too. That, so that's part of it. Um so we can think about secularization on three different levels. So the individual secularization, like individuals are becoming less religious. That's de- that can be seen, but maybe not over a person's lifetime. Um, we can look at like a middle level secularization, like organizations are becoming less religious. So like universities are ditching religious heritages, hospitals no longer work using a religious lens. They might say St. David's Hospital, but they're not using a Christian lens to do medicine. That's secularization. And then like societal level secularization. Um, Governments, you know, we see that with our constitution. We have freedom of religion and freedom from religion. Um, That is a level of secularization at the societal level. At the individual level, there is some debate. Um, Is the... I'm going to use supply and demand language. So is the demand for spirituality, meaning people want spiritual experiences, has that decreased or is that level and stable? There is debate about that. So there's not a clear answer. But in terms of organized religion, 
we could talk about let let's just assume that the the level uh, that the demand for spirituality is constant and level um what we are seeing is that the demand for organized congregational religion is decreasing um we're and we're actively in the process of trying to figure out why that is yeah um yeah i was gonna i was gonna say like if we wanted to yeah if we wanted to split out religion from spirituality some people do that um some people say it's the same phenomenon so sure well and i i i also wonder um how much of that, and maybe you, maybe you've done some some research into this. Uh, you know, how much of that is maybe it's the <laughs> maybe it's the people sort of finally seeing through or rejecting the product that that the church is putting out that we're working so hard to develop to attract these people to come back. Like, is it? You know, the, I think those are those are important questions to ask, and, and, and I mean, I see it. I, again, it's it's all anecdotal because I'm not a, I'm I'm not a brilliant sociologist, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, I mean, it it seems to me that that the product, for lack of a better term, that the church has been putting out for the last twenty years, um, has become tired. You know, like we're we're a lot of people are looking at that, saying like that that's not what they're doing there is not why I want to go to church. Like, I don't want, I don't want all these big productions. I don't like, I want to go, you know, for whatever other, like, because I want to connect with people because I want to connect with something holy and other something that I can't get when I go to a concert venue, you know, things like that. So, um, I don't know that, that, yeah. Yeah. And and that's what we discovered at the, within the pastors that we talked with, um, in terms of laity, I think we can see that with evidence of, um, I, I think about the 1990s book, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail, how evangelicals are moving, some are moving towards the liturgical churches like the Episcopal, Orthodox, or Catholic churches, because they were seeking something that was more holy, more divine, more mysterious. And was not so much a production in terms of the production team. What do we do this week? Well, we've got to have these lights and this fog machine and this element. But instead, it's nope. We're gonna we're gonna do the liturgy that's been here for a thousand years. So I think at the lay level, we see that evidence um, with the liturgical movement. Um, but absolutely, with pastors that we spoke to, they said. And they use production language. They said, we are tired of producing or manufacturing. So this idea of factory language a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that brings up – I've just got one more quick question based on that. I'm I'm curious to see and, – and you answered it somewhat there – like how, how pastors and church leaders are responding to – to some of the things that you are finding out uh, through your, you know, through your research, um, because there's there seems to be, especially you know, I I've been thinking about you know how a lot of pastors are responding to like even just the word deconstruction, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, well this is this is all their fault, like they they're walking away from all these things and 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 it's it it can't be like it can't be what we're doing because what we're doing is so holy and good and it's you know it's the gospel it's straight from scripture you know um but you know so i'm just i'm I'm curious like it, i'm I'm fascinated to hear you say that that there are pastors that are looking at this saying like we we're tired of doing this. Um, that's that that hasn't been my experience with with a lot of the church leaders. It's usually, you know, well, we just need to do more of it. You know? <laughs> so um, we're, we're obviously not doing it right. So we need more. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So that that's a fascinating discovery to me that that there are pastors out there that are saying like, maybe it's time to pump the brakes on on this piece of it for a little bit. So. Yeah, I so we've led workshops around the nation from this research and so here's the good news. Like we are not doom and gloom. We don't think that the majority of pastors are in this stuck situation. Um a lot of the pastors we talked to are 
um, leading their congregations faithfully. They love it. It's challenging work. It doesn't mean there are problems, but they are um, they're satisfied and content in their ministry. And that's good news. However, when we've done this, these workshops, I associate it with a Me Too movement. Um, it is powerful for people who are feeling stuck to hear the voices of others in that situation and to say, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. So Paul, just like you were saying, like, oh, I learned I'm not special. <laughs> you know, like, oh, other people have that experience. You know, part of, the, part of my job as a sociologist is to say, yeah, you're not special. There are millions of people yeah. in this role. Like, that's <laughs> that's what we as sociologists do. We do demographics. Um, but we've we've had so many pastors connect with us and say, I didn't have language for what I was experiencing. I And people describe when they hear, oh, the pastor wants doesn't want to be a pastor anymore. They'll either go two directions. They'll go psychology, burnout. They'll say, oh, well, he or she is burnt out. That, okay, that's a valid explanation. Um, another path is, like you said, deconstruction. Oh, it's about theology. It's about losing faith or changing faith. And what we found is we asked them, are you still called to the ministry? And so our initial hypothesis was before we went to the research, we thought this is going to be deconstruction. This is going to be losing faith. And when we asked that question, are you still called to the ministry? And overwhelmingly people answered like boisterously said, yes, we are. So it wasn't about burnout and it wasn't about losing faith or deconstruction. Something was going on at the level above the individual, at the societal level. And I think that's where we as sociologists had the toolkit to be able to say, you know, these people aren't burnout. They're not depressed uh, for the most part. Um, They are passionate about leading others spiritually to Jesus. Um. They haven't lost faith. There were there was one in the book that we could legitimately say had changed their faith. Um, but they were just frustrated that the structure of the congregation was not allowing them to follow their calling. And so, yeah, it wasn't about burnout. It wasn't about loss of faith. It was something else. It was about structure. How have we created this idea of what does a religious community look like? What does following Jesus look like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I wonder if we have just a penchant toward thinking of things pathologically and when something wrong ha- or something disruptive happens, we think it's because something is wrong. Um, and, right. Yeah. And we think individually wrong. Individually. And I think, so that's yeah. a natural response, Right. Something's wrong. Oh, it's the person. And the gift of sociology to the rest of the, I would say, the world of knowledge is to push back a little bit and say, it's not actually always about the individual. What's going on at what we've created as a society? And how does that affect individuals' um, outcomes? But what's going on at that next level up? Yeah. And that's something that I feel like we have been exposed to a little bit too. We, we, for the last four years, we were part of a small business co-op that was sort of a co not co-op cohort, um, of different small business leaders in this, in the, um, in the for-profit sector. Um, and they were experiencing the shifts that were happening in the transition from the industrial age to the participation age. In, in a way that is very similar to, I think, you know, if we always think of the church behind about a hundred years or something like that from, from where, where industry is maybe, or 50 years probably. Um, and, and going, this disruption seems like a problem at first, but is a gift really. Um, and it is really these, and, and I, I'm almost interested, I'm kind of interested in what you have to say about this, the way I think the shift in space um, 
has has affected us. If we think about the Protestant Reformation being fueled by a technology regarding the printing press, which is the way we we think about authority and language around God. And the internet comes along five, about 500 years later, which changes our concept of space and where where we are interpersonal space. Now we have virtual space we never had to, to think about before. And where is God in that? And then mm-hmm. seemingly unrelated is all this other disruption. And I do feel like, oh man, the... Maybe I haven't been aware of it before, but the conversation between capitalism, Marxism, um, all these different things are coming up. And spirituality is really coming up as we're seeing the metrics of these institutional um, uh, metrics kind of drop at the same time. And I go like, none of this is accidental. They're all sort of uh, giving us cues to what is shifting and what's coming next. Um, what do you make of that? Does that sound like craziness or that, that to me is what I'm sort of noticing? Yeah, I, I don't think that's craziness at all. Um, you know, that's whole, that's, uh, is it Phyllis Tickle and the Great yes, Emergence? Absolutely. Um, you know, her theory that about every 500 years, technology leads to a drastic change in um, our understanding of faith. We might be there. Um, you know, if we think about why is church so hard, why are people not satisfied with church or why are pastors not? Well, in sociology, we call some, we, we label something called a reference group and that's the people that we're comparing ourselves to and that we make our judgment based off of a reference group. Well, historically our reference groups were people in our village and they were not the best. They weren't the most attractive. They weren't the wealthiest. They weren't the most popular in the world. They were just sort of the best, most popular, wealthiest, most talented in our village. Um, now, who do we compare ourselves to? Well, literally through social media, literally the best, the most beautiful, the most talented. Well, with churches, we can our reference groups for what is church have drastically changed. We can listen to the best preachers. We can listen to the best worship. We have it on the radio. We have it on our social media. And so now then when we go to our local church, we're like, well, this isn't, this isn't what I experienced during the week when I'm, you know, watching a podcast or listening to a podcast or listening to music. And so our reference groups have changed, um, not related to religion, but that's why like depression and social media usage are sort of correlated, mm. not sort of really correlated. Absolutely correlated. We yeah. are comparing ourselves to the best, literally the best. Um and so, you know, if I look in the mirror, I'm like, well, I will never have Chris Hemsworth's body, you know, and I'm comparing myself literally to Thor himself. <laughs> um, like that leads to depression. Well, we do that with churches. We're like, well, there's this, this church is having, or this pastor's preaching this, and that person's really entertaining. My pastor's sort of boring. Um, and so I think our reference groups have changed because of technology. I think we are living in the the beginning stages of a transformation that we, I don't grasp fully, but we are absolutely living in the beginning stages of a transformation in all areas of life, not just. A hundred percent. But there's, there's a lot of reason to hope then because of, I mean, at least if we don't know, we're sort of in that liminal space of what transformation is. We know that we're on sort of that journey. At least we can decide to choose, you know, we can choose to look at it as we are in that transformational journey and there's hope. What what does hope look like for you as you're seeing people in the ministry now or or maybe your your hypothesis of what that could look like in the future? Yeah, so for hope, um, I have to take off my sociologist hat and put on my Christian hat. To, that makes totally. Sense. That's cool. Hope, yeah. So, yeah. Hope is a theological virtue. Um, and I go back, this was sort of the closing story in the book stuck. Um, I was with a pastor friend. He is in and out of the ministry, depending on what season of life he's in. And we were having, you know, really good conversations. And he just looked over at me one time and he said, you know, people are still called. 
And what he meant by that is people continue to feel a profound calling from God to be spiritual leaders. That has not changed. And so that's one element of hope. The second element of hope um, is my belief in the Holy Spirit. Um, And so with the Apostles' Creed, you say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. If we are to believe in the Holy Spirit, trust that 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 Spirit is active, then we trust that a church of some sort will be there, a gathering of people who center themselves around Christ. it will look different, and I don't know what it will look like. Um, we don't have St. Augustine's church anymore. Uh, we don't have Paul's church from the Bible. Like, they're the ruins, but that church is not active anymore. Um, and if they were to see our churches now, whether it was liturgical or evangelical or mainline Protestant, um, they wouldn't be able to recognize those forms. Um, and so the future of the church will look different. It will feel different. But I haven't lost hope that the church is, the capital C church is gone. Our understanding of what a congregation looks like, I think that's crumbling. Mm, yeah. I, I want to, maybe it's not switching gears, but we've we've thrown out this word a few times, um, and it's a word that that I find myself uh, recently struggling with. Um, and i I don't know why yet. <laughs> um, I'm still trying to figure it out myself, but it's this word calling. Um, what What does that mean to you? Um, because I think, I, and in in talking with other other worship leaders, other pastors, other people in ministry in general, um, this is this has become it's it's been sort of a buzzword for a really long time. Um, but but I don't I don't know if we know what it means anymore. Um, so what is it? How do you define calling, and and what does that mean, kind of in this in this context of what we're talking about right now, in terms of of feeling stuck, of you know, because for me, like ministry is all I have ever done, and and Paul and I have had this conversation. I've probably talked about it on the podcast. Like I look at my life and I think about you know. In my wildest daydreams, you know, walking away from ministry. Um, that sounds terrible, but um, I, but you know, but I I I feel like I have this weight on me of like, but this is what you're called to do, so this is what you have to do. Um, so walk me through that. I your your definition of calling and and sort of how it how it can sort of contribute to that that feeling of being stuck. Yeah. So I think <laughs> sort of the seminary answer, right of calling, is this idea of vertical and horizontal, like the community calls you, God calls you. Um, but in my research, I've I found something, another element that comes from the world of business. So the moment we call something a calling. The phrase is it's binding and ennobling. And what I mean by that is it's ennobling. A calling can lead people to the highest of heights of altruism, um, to sacrifice for the good, um, to really do a lot of good work. At the same time, it's binding. And it can be exploitative as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So the moment you label something a calling, you don't have to pay people as much. <laughs> so if you say ministers are calling, teachers are a calling, childcare work is a calling, then you don't have to pay them as much because they are called. Why would they do it for the money? They're doing it for the calling. So we'll just give them Gosh. a little bit of money. I'm going to throw so something at the it, wall. <laughs> there's a level of exploitation. <laughs> yeah, there's a level of exploitation. We have to be careful. No, that does not negate the fact that God calls and that right. people call each Absolutely. other. Like the community. So like there's this theological, like beautiful, let's put on our seminary rose colored glasses and let's talk about calling in a really beautiful, profound way. At the same time, we have to be 
really careful because the yeah the moment you say something's a calling you just don't have to pay them and well the people we talked to the pastors we talked to one person said the church just stopped paying his salary he i mean he was a pastor of a really small church and there's like well you would do this for free it's your calling <laughs> and he was like but i have a family like right. we've gone into debt for this calling so he right. like went through his savings went through his retirement account just to live out this calling and it was horrible for him. Uh. Um, and so we have to be careful that it's a, it's a two-edged sword. It really, the, a calling can lead people to the best of behaviors, but a calling can serve as an excuse for people in power to exploit vulnerable people. And that's pastors, like I said, childcare workers are, are huge, um, area yeah. and other um, professions. I find that, I mean, my wife and I have been throwing around this thing when we get to the end of a conversation that is super complex and we don't know, it's usually unresolved or something like that. We just end up saying ampersand. Um, we go ampersand. It is, there's so much in our, in our world that is, that it is both at the same time. It is all together. It is the beautiful. It is the painful. It is the, uh, and, and, and like what you've articulated about calling, I feel like, um, is consistent with anyway, my experience of calling, which both feels like a haunting and it also feels like, yeah, ennobling and empowering. And I go like, oh man, this is the thing that I know how to do. And it's, it's, it shows, it shows that I've, I've, people are receiving value, um, from my contribution. And at the same time, like it's costing me and, um, I haven't had to go into debt over it, you know, in, financially speaking, but have I had to in relationships? Have I had to in my health? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Many times. Yeah. I was just, we, I, we're in a weekend where it's like, or we we're recording this just after Easter. Um, and I, my last two days, I was just like at home sick because I was just exhausted, stressed and sick from it. <laughs> like, uh, and people were like, hey, you know, take rest and all this kind of like, yeah. And I feel like, I know, I've been doing this for a long time. It's like, <laughs> you want me to and you don't want me to because you're getting the, I know how to do the show. <laughs> I, so I know how to make this thing. That's my magic trick, you know. And, um, but yeah, oh, man, that is some. It's so true words, uh, Todd. Thank you so much. I mean, and, and that's part of the thing. It's like people stuck in the calling. And you also kind of talk about these other th the other three main areas in which people are, are stuck. Because I think that's really important for our people to hear as well. Yeah. So we <laughs> sociologists, we like to think of different levels. Mm -hmm. So we thought about how are pastors stuck in um, their calling and then their congregation, and then their career. Um, in their calling, yes, there, there's the the binding and ennobling part of calling, but also, and we alluded to this earlier, pastors felt like they were producing a spiritual product, and they hated that. They didn't feel like it was authentic. Um, there's this theory, and it actually goes back to Karl Marx, um, and I know he has a lot of baggage with his name associated, <laughs> and rightly so. Mm -hmm. But one of the things he did that, one of the few things that I like about his theory is he focused on poor people and what's the welfare of the poor person. And he said, anything, if you're working in a factory, you can become alienated from that product, whatever you're producing. So if you're in a chair factory um and you're making that chair you actually become alienated or separated from that chair um because it's not a an outflowing of your artistic expression anymore you're not a craftsman mm -hmm. lovingly you know <laughs> taking wood crafting that chair and then when people ask you um how do you make that chair you're like oh i took this ash tree from this field and i made boards and then right? i curved yeah you know Instead, you're just like sticking on the leg, the third leg, on, and then you pass it on to the next guy, and he sticks on the fourth leg. And so when people are like, hey, how'd you make that chair? You're like, I have no clue. I stuck on the third leg and passed it on. 
Um, or if you said, well, don't you love the chairs you have? How many do you own? And they'd say, this chair is way too expensive. I'm a poor factory worker. I can't, <laughs> I can't afford this chair. You know, yeah. we can replace the word chair with iPhone, by the way, you know, to bring it. <laughs> uh-huh. So sociologists took that theory and they said, you know, it's anything you do for a job. If you produce something on your job, you will be separated or alienated from it. Hmm. So a flight attendant, they are using their smile for their job. It is a legal part, or not legal, but it is a requirement of their job to make people feel safe, happy, and that we're not going to crash. And so you smile to do that. Well, then that smile is no longer authentic. It's a service sold on the marketplace to make sure ticket customers or um, ticket buyers are happy Hmm. and they're cared for. We take that theory and said, well, pastors are producing a spiritual product to be sold on the marketplace. And if they're doing that, they can become alienated from it. And that's what they told us over and over. They said, I feel like I'm I'm pinned up all week to create this one perfect hour and 10 minutes. And it's planned down to the lighting cues, to the worship, to the key changes, to when I pause in a sermon. And then I get done and I'm like, was that authentic? Uh. Did I have a real expression of the Holy Spirit and God? Or did I pause there because I knew it was more emotional? And this really, this was more of our evangelical pastors. Our mainline pastors struggled with some other things, but our evangelical pastors, they struggled with this. Yeah. And so when we talk about being alienated from the calling, the pastors we spoke to were just questioning, is what they're doing authentic? Or is it something that we need to have a really good production on Sunday morning? Because if you don't, you're not going to have people the next week and your budget's going to go down and you're going to close. It might be 50 years from now, but you'll close. And that pressure of constantly manufacturing and producing. One of the pastors we spoke to, he had this amazing story of he was the teaching pastor of a really big mega church. And he wanted to make a point um, in the sermon to connect with someone in like the second row off to the side. And so he, you know, sort of broke script. There was a script, right? He broke script and he pointed out to that person in the second row, like, oh, this connects to your life. And he moved away from the spotlight and his little taped X where he's supposed to stand. So the tech team can film him and have spotlights for him. And he said the tech team was furious at him and they're in their booth waving him over saying, get back, get back to your cue, get back. (laughs) And he realized that was the day he realized he couldn't be authentic. He could not connect spiritually with his loved, beloved congregants because the technical production aspect got in the way. And he left. He quit the ministry. Um, so, that, yeah, so that's one way. The way. Um, in terms of being stuck in the congregation, so that next level, so not personal calling, not individual, but congregation, our mainline Protestant pastors were struggling with secularization. They're the ones, those denominations are hemorrhaging numbers, hemorrhaging members. They're losing like 60% of their members every decade. I mean, it, it, they're losing a lot. And they felt it. Um, and they were blamed for it. And so people would come up to them with a lot of anger, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of grief saying, you know, I remember when this church was packed and we had Sunday school and we had an associate pastor and we could pay a full-time organist and we had a choir that was filling the choir loft. And now it's just you. And the pastor's like, are you saying that if I worked harder, we would have more? And they felt the the mainline Protestant pastors felt so they were tired because they felt like they were working fewer resources. They were working harder and the results were never going to be the same. We're never going to go back to the 1960s, 70s. And so 
they felt stuck in the congregation. Um, and then our evangelical pastors, they felt like they were just running a business or a franchise. They felt like the metrics were always growth, 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 growth. Who cares if you have authentic experiences? We need more people. And so they were, they would talk about removing chairs in the sanctuary when they knew it was going to be a low summer day, low attendance day in summer. So it felt fuller. You know, they talked about being an accountant versus a spiritual leader. Um, they talked about feeling the pressure to go get an MBA versus an MDiv. Um, and so this idea that the church was a business, a franchise, um, a corporation, and they hated it. Um, and so, and then the third is just the career. Um, there is a stigma against having the word pastor on your resume. And if they wanted to get out, people didn't know what to do with the MDiv, the Master of Divinity. And so they couldn't find other jobs, um, even though they had managed budgets, even though they had managed people and projects, they had all those skills. They could not translate it, and employers could not translate it themselves um, if they saw the word pastor or master divinity. And so one guy even said, like, yeah, they look at my resume. It says master divinity three years at a seminary, and they thought I was at Hogwarts. They had no clue <laughs> what a, a seminary degree. They were like, well, you just went to Hogwarts. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fun fact, when I was at Duke Divinity, I felt like I was at Harvard. Yeah. It was the gothic yeah. <laughs> Did, cathedral. Do they actually have like, a sorting hat? Every day. They... Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a liturgical sorting hat. Yeah, a liturgical sorting hat. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's, I was just having this conversation, uh, sorry to interrupt, uh, yesterday, uh, I met for, for coffee with a guy, uh, who just got let go, uh, by his church and, and he's trying to find, you know, his way forward to his next thing. And, and we, we talked about like how difficult it is, um, cause he was, you know, he was submitting resumes to, you know, all kinds of, of areas of work outside the church. But he's like, all he's ever done is ministry. And so every single thing on his resume says, you know, pastor of this, minister of that, you know, uh, director of such and such. And while those are all very transferable skills, you know, um, an employer looks at that and like you said, just sees, you know, Hogwarts and it's it's all gobbledygook. And so like hopefully someday there will be a way to say like, yeah, when that says director of stewardship, um, I was an accountant. Yeah, so like I can I can crunch right. your numbers. I can do fundraising. I can do like you know. But but until that shift happens, like yeah, there there are going to be a lot of of ministry leaders who want to get out of that who just feel stuck because who else is going to take me? You know. Yeah, uh, Todd. I I wish we could continue this conversation over and over again. Even just the stuff that you said, but I want to respect your time. Um, and, uh, but one, one thing maybe just to kind of wrap up is I think as we've talked about here, here's some of the challenges here are just few of these things that are just kind of unacceptable for people to live like this. And it's really unsustainable for a church to continue this way. Um, and I will I will admit that my uh, my response often goes to like I think what you articulated in, in the last in Lauren's podcast the futurist versus the traditionalist response. I lean on the futurist thing as a creative. Um, it's mostly about quantity over quality. So I'm not I'm not afraid if something fails, just ditch it and move forward with whatever. Ha but your point about such a beautiful corrective is like, that's not how history happens. We always start with something. So the futurist, although that, that passion is good, has to be balanced from a traditionalist point of view to understand you come from a particular context and, and place that has to have that, um, that grounding. Um, would you, as we wrap up, just kind of articulate, like, how is a balanced approach that we can move forward and going like, yeah, this is an unacceptable place to be, but here's possibly where, what it could look like for us to get healthier. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I have to give full credit. This was not my theory, not my idea, but it's the idea of traditioned innovation. And that comes from Greg Jones and Andy Hope. Um, you know, when we, when we experience or when we're faced with uncertainty or um, a future that we don't know the direction it's going to go, like you said, there are two options. There's traditionalism where we're just like, we're going to dig in our heels. Nothing's going to change. We're going to do the same things that worked in the past. Um, and the other is futurism. Blow the whole thing up. Start again. Don't even do the same thing. Move on. And none of those approaches are helpful for the situation that we are living in. Mm -hmm. Um, Futurism doesn't understand that institutions matter. And for the long-term survivability of things, we have to have institutions. Um, So we as humans are pretty instinctual-less, meaning we don't have a lot of instincts. Um, in comparison to a lot of other animals, like a beaver, you ask it to build a, a dam, a house. They're like, sure, I know how to do that. You tell a human, build a house. We don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And if we did it, it looks different from culture to culture. So we have institutions mm-hmm. that are our memory keepers that tell us how do we how do we do the good things in the world? Futurism blows up institutions. Um, so we have to have something to keep us connected to the past. Traditionalism just ignores change. We are absolutely living in a time of change. Um, the future is going to be different, and it feels different already. Something is not working. So Greg Jones and Andy Hogue, um, they have this concept of traditioned innovation. And I love it because it's based in wisdom practices. So you look at what's the wisdom that we have from the past. Where are the good things? Maybe not the best practices, but the wisdom. And then how can that be a tool for guiding the future? Um, So one of the things that we recommend um, was we need to close down churches that are struggling. Like we need to do some culling. And that's really easy to write in a book. And it's really easy to say on a podcast. And it's really hard to do in practice because congregations are centers of memory and community. But if a church can't pay a full-time pastor and a pastor wants a full-time job, um, not bivocational, there are some people called to that, but for the most part, pastors wanted, pastors want a pastor. Um. I think we need to start closing down some churches. Um, the wisdom there is the Apostles' Creed, right? Like I said earlier, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. We can trust, we can hope that the future of the churches is going to be there. Um, and that means we are, we are free to start closing down struggling churches to allow pastors to have positions are a little bit more healthy, <laughs> a little bit more sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Todd, thank you so much. This is, I'm, my my brain is so full. <laughs> Actually, my heart is full <laughs> too. Heart, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's, it's, a, it's been a fantastic conversation. Um, once again, the book is Stuck, Why Clergy Are Alienated from Their Calling, Congregation, and Career, and What to Do About It. Um, where can people find out more about you, your work? What sort of channels are you on? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter um, I at Todd W. Ferguson. So if um, use my middle initial, if you will Google Todd W. Ferguson, I'll pop up. I have a website, T.W. Ferguson, uh, and that has me both in my book writing about clergy, but also I'm a data analyst as well. So it's got some of that. It's all over the board for that website. Um, but I'm on Twitter um, and then LinkedIn as well. And so I really appreciate you all having me on. Um, it's been a great conversation. The pleasure was ours. Please, uh, please keep, please keep doing this important work and, uh, and we'll, yeah, I know, I know we'll be following it and, um, and yeah, saying saying and 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 shining light on things that 
that nobody wants to see is is sometimes hard and, and messy work. So thank you, um, but uh, but keep at it. We're we're on your side, and uh, and uh, yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time to 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 do our little our little podcast. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Wow, that was an amazing conversation. Mm-hmm. That was so much. Yeah, that was so much. Yeah, and if if we could, if we can get him back, I I I want to have him back. Yeah, because because I feel like we were just scratching the surface mm-hmm. on the things that he has discovered uh, and the things that he is still discovering. Like this mm-hmm. is ongoing research for him. Yeah. Um, and so just because he's written the book on it uh, doesn't mean that there's not more to be discovered. Um, I I'm. I'm still, uh, as I mentioned in the episode, and, and I've probably mentioned a handful of other times, like still wrestling with this idea of what calling means. Yeah. Um, I've even gone so far as to sort of like remove it from from my language and the way that I talk about ministry and the way that I talk about just my own role in in ministry and 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 with others. Um, but he, I feel like the, the things that he said about calling help give me a little bit better framework um for that and 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 makes me not as uncomfortable with that word and what it means um and so i'm grateful uh that he could shed some some insight on that um because it is it's a it's a weighty thing mm-hmm. and um and and something that has made me feel stuck for for a very long time um and so i'm grateful for for his insight into that word yeah. um uh, and so yeah also just this idea of like fi- like how we're we're losing authenticity by feeling like we have to like we're selling a product yeah. to people yeah. um I, and i don't know i don't know how we can sort of reclaim that it does take a lot of work and I think that's something that the church is going to be wrestling with for for quite a while. It's yeah. like, how do we get away from a product oriented, you know, gathering mm-hmm. of people and 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 bring it more towards something that's that's very authentic and very real um, and 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 impactful. Yeah. Like not only to the people that are in like in the in that gathering, but also like. How does that impact the community around us? Yeah. You know, things like that. So, I um, think those are those are some big things that I'm going to be wrestling with, and I think we all should wrestle with. Yeah, I think the piece that actually it f- hit a little too close to home <laughs> because mm. I realized here's why it, where I am in the stage of all of this transition is you know that story he shared of the pastor who was on stage and his tech team got mad because uh-huh. he walked away from the spotlight. Yep. And um, unfortunately, I think. I experienced so much of the alienation between me and the craft mm-hmm. that it may have been what has inspired me into my current position, mm-hmm. you know, as a tech director, because I know how to do the show well, right. and I know how to do it on a consistent basis that um, I decided to just go, okay, I'm just going to cut out that whole part of me, yeah. that spiritual, emotional part yeah. of me, and just do this job. Um, I know that it's it's not something that's sustainable. I know yeah. I can't do it forever right. because uh, the other part of me is true and real and wants a space. Yeah. So I'm looking for places to, to fit that in. It may sure. not look the way it used to, um, but uh, it's, it's a real struggle for me. It's a real yeah. thing. Yeah. So uh, I, I, and I imagine that everybody is in some place along that spectrum yeah that is they're either they're either happy and this is a completely foreign uh episode and struggles yeah or they're going like uh i'm so far past it and so given up on it that i don't i don't want to or you're really in the struggle still yeah um and so regardless of where you are we just we're just hoping for for peace for you and Mm -hmm. for you to not um shut down parts of yourself whether that's spiritual, emotional, or intellectual yeah. um, pieces that you have real questions. Um, and, and that's something we really care about and, and want more of for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, uh, if you are struggling in those areas or there are other things that are going on um, and you just need uh, someone to, to kind of bounce 
those ideas off of and, and all of that. Um, we, we talk about this a lot, but uh, head to greenroomleaders.com. Um, we're, we're working on developing a community of other worship leaders uh, that can uh, that can sit together and, and, and figure out how we can make our way forward through uh, through ministry without losing our souls, without losing our hearts, uh, without losing ourselves. Um, and so uh, you can find out more information about that at greenroomleaders.com. You can also go to torncurtainarts.org. Uh, go to contact us, and, and if you want to grab a cup of coffee, uh, reach out. Um, because I'm finding uh, in this season uh, just being able to sit down with someone else and and uh, who understands and, and knows what's going on um, can can be really helpful. So uh, I don't f- think we do that enough. I just ask you to reach out to us directly, um, yeah. and and we'll 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 pay for the coffee or or whatever whatever beverage of your choice. Um, so uh, reach out. Um, you can also support Torn Curtain Arts. Uh, and, and this work that we're doing by going to torncurtainarts.org slash donate. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, yeah, it's your, your support that makes all of this possible. So, uh, thank you so much for listening and, uh, we will, uh, we'll catch you on the next episode, which will be coming soon. Yeah. So thank you so much. Love you. Chasing Sunday is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and distributed by Resonate Media. Your hosts are Brian Davis and Paul Romig-Levitt, with editing and mixing by Danny Burton. Torn Curtain Arts is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and your tax-deductible gifts make our work possible. For more information about TCA and to partner with us in our ongoing work, visit torncurtainarts.org.